0: Welcome to Sex Unshackled. I am Becky Krepsley-Fox and this podcast is where sexuality and spirituality meet. Today on Sex Unshackled, I have Dr. Naomi Sutton with me. Naomi works as a consultant physician in sexual health for the NHS and starred as the doctor on series one and two of the E4 TV show The Sex Clinic. Naomi is proud to be a trustee for the Saving Lives UK charity, a charity which exists to raise awareness of HIV and STI testing, and is also an EVE Appeal Ambassador, a charity which raises awareness of the five gynecological cancers. Naomi, I am super excited to have you here with me today. Can you please tell the listeners what brought you to this work?
1: Oh gosh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about sex and everything to do with it. Um, what, what was this work? Um, so I guess it's, well, if we start right back at the start, I, I was always very good at science at school. And um, I guess it was almost like a progression. That's kind of just what you did. You then went into medicine. Um, so went into medicine and also I've always loved people and my dad always jokes that you know if there was a a half alive woodlouse I'd try and rescue it and save it so I've always tried to I guess rescue started with small animals now I'm trying to rescue people (laughs) Um, I always wanted to care for something Um, so it just sort of fitted and then I fell into sexual health really um, almost by accident but I think as soon as I found it I realized this was definitely a specialty for me and the more I engross myself in it, I think the more feminist I become and Mm -hmm. the more passionate I am about everything I do. And um, I guess there's lots of things that frustrate me about our culture um, to do with sex and all the shaming and all the stigma. Um, And so I've just become an ambassador to try and break down um, myths and I guess wrongs, I suppose. So I kind of feel I'm... uh, yeah, I've gone out on a limb. I'm just like, come on, let's all just be a bit more normal about it. And, you know, let's name our body bits. And yeah. So, yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. I, I think if you cut me in half, bit like bit like a piece of rock <laughs> and say sexual health, sexual health, sexual health. <laughs> <through it. laughs>
0: I love that. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit now, just because I'm really curious of some um, recent myths that you have been debunking. Is there any that come to mind?
1: Oh gosh, there are so many that I hear. And, and I guess when anyone says the word should, so I guess, you know, people go, Oh, well, I should do that or whatever. I, mean, I guess it's not really a myth, but it's one of those things that I hear all the time in clinic. And so if you, if you track that, the should word back, it actually stems from either your parents or culture or religion. And actually, when you actually think about it, I mean, I guess it depends how much weight you put on your culture and religion or whatever else. But actually, if it's making you feel uncomfortable or unhappy, we just need to question why we should be living in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of my uh, bugbears is, you know, so I question that a lot. And I guess myths like, you know, you can tell if someone's got a sexual transmitted infection, for example, they're dirty, they're clean. You know, these words that people use. Mm. There is no such thing as dirty and clean unless you're talking about hygiene or kitchen. Um, <laughs> you know, sexual health is, well, all STIs can be present without any symptoms. In fact, the majority of them are. So yeah. people walk around thinking that they're OK because, you know, they've boxed themselves in what we like to think of as a good person or a bad person whatever um and looking at everyone else and we judge everyone don't we by our own standards um so yeah i'd like to get rid of judgment and stigma and the word should
0: yes <laughs> i love that i love getting rid of the word should it comes out in my practice a lot you know uh, we should be having sex once a week
1: exactly why yeah,
0: why <laughs> you, whoever yeah, makes that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <exactly>. yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So today we're going to speak about HIV. Naomi, yeah. can you kick us off by telling the listeners what HIV is?
1: Yeah, so HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. Um, so it's a virus that descended, I say descended, so all these viruses kind of mutate and become from something else. So it uh, descended for want of a better word from the uh, simian, simian immunodeficiency virus. So it's a, um, a, a the, the HIV that's taken over the world that we know as HIV is HIV-1. So that originated from chimpanzees. There's another type of HIV called HIV-2, which came from sooty bees. Um, but that's a much more indolent virus. So it, it never really took off in the same way, but there are small pockets of people with HIV-2. But for the purposes of the world, HIV-1 is what we know as HIV. Um, so that, ca- that, that came from, originated from a chimpanzee virus. Um, and it's not from people having sex with chimpanzees or it wasn't made in a lab. It was literally because as we kill pigs and cows um, in Africa, people kill chimpanzees for meat. So during the process of, you know, hacking these chimpanzees up, there will have been transmissions from blood to blood with injuries. So that's how we think it started. And and actually the, the, the transmissions that started the first epidemic will have happened way back sort of, Ninety, you know, anywhere from eighteen nineties to nineteen tens, sort of very, very early, and then because of globalization, um, travel, all different things that sort of culminated in the ability for this virus to then transmit. So basically, colonization was a big thing. So I say we, the white people, went over to Africa, and built cities and railroads and went around villages, immunizing people and trying to get rid of. Smallpox and chickenpox and things like that. We didn't know about sterilization at the time. So, you know, you take one needle to one village. If someone has HIV, you then transmit it very quickly. And also, colonization moved huge swathes of um, men from their villages where their wives were into cities. So, prostitution was rife. Um, and then, obviously, travel. And also, it was around the time, uh, so the 1970s, the Stonewall riots and things. So, uh, men who were having sex with men were starting to have rights and um, I guess be a bit more open. So it's, it was much more, um, well, maybe there was more sex happening with men between men. And obviously because of the sex men have, it's much more easy to transmit HIV because it, it's rectal mucosa is much more vulnerable compared to vaginal mucosa. So there's loads of reasons why this, why this epidemic happened. Mm. But by 1980s, it was literally in every continent in the world. Um, despite people denying, there was a lot of denying going on Um, and then obviously it happened and it was incredibly scary so if you think about Covid now, um, you know how we've all been, there's so many myths going on and it was very similar with the HIV epidemic so people didn't know what was causing it so for, you know, it was a long time before we knew what the virus was, we just saw especially in sort of the states, it was first reported in uh, San Francisco with these Uh, young men who were having strange pneumonias and carposis sarcoma, so it's a very rare tumor of the skin. Um, And, you know, all these young men were being in the hospital and dying and no one knew what to do. And it was incredibly scary. Um, And interestingly, so depending on... Oh, sorry, I should probably explain. So HIV basically um, attacks your immune system so over time, so the virus itself doesn't kill you. It's the opportunity infection that you then get that ends up killing you. So actually, so um, when we're looking at HIV, we measure CD4 counts. So that's a marker of your immunity, I suppose, in your body. It's a type of cell that the HIV attacks, for want of a better word. So as that declines, you then have less ability to fight things like these rare Infections, so PCP pneumonia, carposis sarcoma, things that we'd never seen unless you're on chemotherapy drugs or things like that. So it's a very odd sort of uh, presentation for medics to see, um, and and so depending on what opportunity infection you get depends on the pattern that you present with. And so in Africa, the biggest um, the biggest uh, opportunistic infection was tuberculosis. So they saw. Men and women dying of um, sort of a wasting illness, so very, very thin. So you know, so culturally, you know, it was then stigmatised to be very thin as a black African because you know, again, they're like, well, have you got HIV? You know, it was a very stigmatising. Um, so yeah, it depends where you are in the world as to how HIV will present. Um, obviously, there is the term AIDS, which I don't think is really necessary. That indicates when someone has end-stage HIV and it's a better way to talk about it is to talk about end-stage HIV rather than AIDS because of the huge stigma that surrounds it. And it doesn't matter. So even if you had one CD4 count, so we should normally have above 400, but even if your immune system was so damaged and you got down to one, it still doesn't mean that you're going to die because we have such good antiretroviral treatment now. So back, I mean, obviously you're higher risk of dying and ideally we want people diagnosed when their immunity is good, Um, but it doesn't matter when you're diagnosed, the important thing is to get tested and get diagnosed because we really can resurrect people, you know, sort of from the dead almost. I mean, I've had patients who have, this one chap actually died twice, his heart stopped twice, he got down to about 61 kilograms and he's now had children, got married, you know, it's an amazing story. But we need to know that you've got it so that we can help. So that's why testing is so, so important. Um, And again, I think people put themselves in a box again, like we talked earlier about, well, I couldn't have HIV because I'm a white heterosexual, for example. And actually, it's the white heterosexuals that are diagnosed later, because they don't see themselves as risk uh, as a risk. And Healthcare professionals are just as bad. So you know, just as everybody else judges, we're not we're not blind from you know pigeonholing people and judging people. So we think, oh, you know, you're you're 50 and you're white and you're heterosexual. Of course, you can't have high HIV. Of course, you can. Anybody can have it. And unless you've been tested, you don't know whether you've got it or not. So you know, it, it doesn't really matter about your sexual history because you can have had sex with just one person. And have HIV or you could have had sex with a thousand people and not have it so it really is you know sadly it's a little bit about a, you know it's a, a luck thing sometimes I don't like the word luck that's a silly thing to say but you know it, it's I'd like us to get away from pigeonholing yeah. risk yeah. Um, but again that's difficult because otherwise you know we can't afford to test the globe but what I would say is you've never been tested you know, ne- pop, pop, pop down to your sexual health clinic and have a test at least once in your lifetime. Um, and, you know, if you're having lots of sex, then get tested regularly. As in lots of sex with lots of different people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rather than, I'm having sex every day. I need to have, no. <laughs> you know
0: I mean, if you're changing partners, it's worth thinking about STIs. Yeah. And I think you debunked quite a few myths already of what you're just talking about. And I watched It's a Sin. Did you see it? I love it. It was just Uh, brilliant. It It was was heartbreaking. It was beautiful. And what I didn't know, and which you you were just talking about, is that people die from lots of different reasons. So what I found really fascinating is the end stages that that these lads had before they died and that it affected them in so many different ways. And that's something that I didn't know and I just thought was so eye-opening.
1: Yeah. 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 So, it, uh, you know, sort of crypt. Well, I mean, there are so many um, what we what we call AIDS defining illnesses um, or end stage HIV illnesses um, that, you know, the list is ridiculously long. Yeah. There were definitely the common ones that, you know, we were grouping together and therefore that then prompted HIV testing. But I think it was 1986 until we had a test. Um, and all this was happening in 1981 you, you probably I don't know it depends how old you are but people often remember the the AIDS campaign in the 1980s um and it was on it it was an advert and it was so I mean I watch it now and it fills me with with fear it was really scary and the Australians did one as well where they were rolling um bolt the the uh the Grim Reaper was rolling bowling balls down the alleyway and just knocking people over and those babies falling over it was I mean they're wow. all for you to google them so if you google the yeah. Australian uh, AIDS ad and obviously the the UK one and so for anybody over the age of 40 odd that is all people know about HIV and AIDS so that's what we remember so there hasn't been another campaign since then that said actually HIV is a chronic manageable condition mm-hmm. and so get tested because you know, then you prevent onward transmission. So we think in the UK, there's probably about, I mean, it's always difficult to quantify, but just under about 8,000 people undiagnosed with HIV. And so it's the people who are undiagnosed that are at risk of passing it on because you don't know you've got it. And so the really amazing, 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 amazing thing that we can now say to all our patients is that if you're on treatment, you can't pass the virus on to sexual partners and so for people living with hiv that's such a oh gosh well i mean it, it's it's almost mind blowing so before we'd have to yeah. say use condoms use blah 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 and that's based on huge 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 studies which have been going on for 10 the last 20 years so we're not basing that on just a whim this is evidence this is studies this you know there's so much data behind this and Um, you know, in medicine, we always practice evidence-based medicine. And um, the reason it took us so long to come out with a statement, I mean, we've cloned, um, you might've heard of the U equals U. So basically undetectable equals untransmissible. So that was a campaign launched by Bruce Richmond, And he's an American lawyer in 2016. And it took Beaver, so Beaver's our British HIV Association, till 2019, before we came out with that statement of You cannot pass this on. So before it was like a negligible risk and we were all really worried about it. But in science, if anyone is a scientist, it's very, very difficult to prove a negative because you're always waiting for that one case, aren't you? But we have so many cases. It's so easy to prove a positive because you're looking for, you know, but does does that make sense? So you're waiting for that one transmission to go, ah, but we've disproved that now. And we haven't, we haven't found it. And there's been Incredible. Literally thousands, thousands, thousands of sex acts with what we call serial discordant couples. So one has HIV, one doesn't. And as long as that person's on treatment and their viral load's undetectable, you can't pass it on. I should probably explain what a viral load is. Yes. <laughs> so, so obviously you have a HIV test, which is different. So you have that one test and that's looking for antibodies. So that's the, the signal that we produce in our body to show that we've got the infection. And then viral load is what we measure every, normally every six months once people are stable. And that's what we call undetectable. What that means is that the, the labs, the, the monitoring that we have, can't pick up any virons of this virus at all. So the drugs are so effective, there's nothing going around in your body and we can measure less than 40 copies. Um, and to put that in perspective, people with untreated HIV might have a viral load of anywhere... I mean, it can vary depending on how your body deals with the virus, but anywhere up to, you know, in the millions. Okay. So, you know, so we've, yeah. that, that viral load has come hugely down. And so um, when you look at infectivity, so people say, well, what's the risk of getting HIV? Again, it's really difficult because it depends on so many factors. So it depends on the type of sex you're having, but also the viral load of the person that you're having sex with. Mm-hmm. So if your viral load is in the millions, which often is the later on in the disease you get. So towards, you know, when your CD4 counts very low, your viral load often gets much higher. So therefore towards end stage HIV, you're much more infectious or when you first get it. So when you first get HIV or towards the end, your viral loads are at the highest. So that's when you're most infective to people. So that's why, you know, that's often why you get sort of clusters of HIV is because someone will get HIV and still be having sex with their sort of usual partners and, you know, can create a little cluster because you're so infective at the time of uh, acquiring it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, that's spiral load in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but,
1: but yeah, anybody who is on HIV medication will be able to tell somebody what their viral load is because you know I go, your viral load is undetectable. And it should be. So and also there are so many medications now for HIV that we can use. Um that you know, and, and HIV now has actually a better outcome than diabetes. You know, if you get diabetes, your life expectancy is much shorter than someone yeah. who has HIV. So again, just get tested. Yeah. Again, that's someone who's tested early and on treatment, blah, blah, blah. Yeah.
0: So you are talking about treatment and the listeners might have heard of PrEP. I'm wondering if you can just explain PrEP or if there is anything else that I'm unaware of and what this does.
1: Great segue there. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so, so there's, um, so for a long time, there's been what we call post-exposure prophylaxis or Pepsi. Um, and that's if someone's had, so say someone had HIV, say someone had sex with someone with HIV, um, 10 years ago and we weren't sure about viral load or whatever, or wasn't on treatment. Cause we, um, in, it's only really been recent that we treat everybody at any stage. We used to at one point wait until their CD4 count was lower because we weren't sure whether the treatment was worse for them than the HIV. But now we realize actually the treatment's brilliant. You just get them treated and suppress viral load. So, you know, Pepsi was much more utilized uh, a while, you know, years ago. Um, and that is when someone will come in and go, I've had sex with someone, they had HIV or, you know, a risk, high risk of HIV and you give antiretroviral treatment, they take it for 28 days. So it's just really important to get because PrEP and PEP mm. often get confused. So that's PEP, post-exposure prophylaxis. So that's if you've had a risk, you're, you know, incredibly anxious whatever, come in and discuss it. And then there's PrEP. So that's pre-exposure prophylaxis. So again, that's taking antiretroviral medication, but it's just two in one tablet. Um, In the majority of HIV patients, we treat them with triple therapy. There there are some dual therapies out now, but basically we, we, sorry, I'm getting off course again, but just to explain, the virus is incredibly clever at mutating so what we realized very early on in the HIV ep- epidemics, we would throw one drug at them and they become resistant incredibly quickly. So AZT, for example, those big AZT trials, and it'd hold the viral load for a while and then it'd rebound. Um, whereas now we always attack the drug with, well, normally three, but sometimes two very potent drugs that act on different stages of the life cycle. So we keep it suppressed and therefore you don't get resistance, etc. But with PrEP, there's loads and loads of studies. So you just use two of, the, two of these antiretroviral drugs. They're normally in a blue tablet, it's called Trivada. Um, and you can take that, so somebody who's high risk of acquiring HIV um, can take that either daily, or um, if you're a, a female, so if you're heterosexual, you have to take it daily. But if if you're a man who has sex with ma- a man who has sex with other men, you've also got the option of using it as event-based dosing. So um, so everyone has the option to take it daily. So you take a Travada tablet every single day. Again, you have to come and be assessed. And there's lots of criteria for you to fulfill to need PrEP because it has its side effects as well. But if you're deemed if, if you're deemed um that, you know, it'd be the risk that the benefits outweigh the risk, then you'll be prescribed it. So you can either take it daily or event based dosing is when you are, for example, say you're a man who has sex with men and you're going to a a party um, for a weekend and you know that you're gonna have loads of sex, you can dose yourself up. So you take two tablets, two to 24 hours before the event and then you carry on taking it with a tail of 48 hours. So that just kind of, I guess because of the side effects of prep, if you are if you say go three months with no sex and then have like a wild time, it doesn't make sense to take those three months when you're not having any sex. Does yeah. so that make sense? Perfect sense. And but yeah, but most people will probably end up taking it daily.
0: Yeah, yeah. And A said T, is that the one that's in Dallas Buyers Club?
1: Yes, it is, yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. yes.
1: Yeah, so AZT, it was actually a, a, a chemotherapy drug that was shelved because it was so toxic. Um, they were giving it a much higher level. So with the trials, they're giving it much higher levels. There are, I mean, AZT is, some people will still be using it, but it's in a, a very different dosing to what they had you know, back in the old days. Yeah. Um, and you know it's used in combination and actually there's there's better drugs now because it had a lot of side effects yeah um, but yeah lots of people have heard of these are tea trials
0: yeah also another great movie for the listeners yeah. <laughs> watch that and it's a sin um so okay so people can take PrEP people can take PEP uh what else can people do to prevent transmission of HIV so condoms con-
1: yeah condoms. condoms 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 I mean um I know they're you know, people, people don't like them. I understand why people don't like them. I guess it, it's a it's a balance, isn't it, between, and, and I think everyone has to look individually at their own circumstances. Um, so another, I guess it's a bit of a, I hear this a lot. People will go, um, you know, I'll say, oh, do you use condoms? And they'll go, oh, yeah, no, we did do, but I trust him now, so we don't. And I'm like, Oh, th- well, that's lovely that trusted. <laughs> you trust know, And I love that, you know, that's, a, that's lovely. And I kind of know what they mean. But the issue is, unless you've both been tested, yeah. before you stop using condoms, you don't know who has, has what. Exactly. Yeah. So as I explained, you know, HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, trike, HPV, HSV, they're all present without symptoms. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I want people to try, you know, have good sex, have lovely relationships. That's, that's everything to me but you need to have a healthy outlook as well and think about it so you know make a decision okay you know I'm on contraception or whatever or you know let let's go and both get ourselves checked before we stop using condoms Mm. yeah before the horse has bolted yeah um, as it were Uh, but yeah so condoms obviously and then limiting partner number but again, that's kind of a choice thing. And I think it depends on the person. It depends on their situation. It depends on their sexuality. It depends on what feels right for them. Mm-hmm. What I'd always say is don't be pressured into fitting a box. You know, I don't want people to be shamed about, you know, some people like having lots of sex with lots of anonymous partners. Well, do you know what, if that fits with you and it's it's healthy? Because, you know, obviously you, you'll you know about this, but sometimes people use sex for as self-medicating a bit like they do with food. Yeah. So that's when it can become unhealthy. But I think if you're if you feel you're in control of it, you know, do what makes you happy. But again, try and be safe. And if you're having lots of anonymous sex or you know lots of multiple partners, then I definitely would try and use condoms as much as you can.
0: Yeah. And is there a rough time that you might get symptoms after catching HIV?
1: Yeah. So um HIV you get normally get a seroconversion illness between one to three weeks normally. So often you'll get like a sore throat, you can get all sorts of symptoms as with syphilis. It's a great mimicker. Mm -hmm. So it's often missed, but you have to wait at least seven weeks before you can definitely say you haven't got it. So, you know, if if you've had a high risk exposure, we call it, you know, if you've had a high risk sexual encounter, I'd definitely come and talk to someone and I'd definitely get tested as a baseline. And then, you know, often we can pick it up. Majority of cases are picked up by four weeks. So if you were incredibly worried, I'd go back at four weeks and have a test. Um, but it's just a, so window period is, is a time from picking up an infection to definitely knowing that you haven't got it or you know, the, the test would definitely pick it up. So it's seven weeks for HIV, three months for syphilis, two weeks for gonorrhea and chlamydia.
0: I think that's so important because I don't think a lot of people know about that. If they go and have sex on Saturday, on Sunday, they can't get a test, exactly. or it won't show if they get the yeah, test. Exactly. So I think that's it's
1: a, bit, it's a bit like a pregnancy test. You know, yeah. you can't do it the day after sex. It, it's yeah. just silly. The sperm hasn't even met the egg yet. <laughs> so yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And yeah. what can people do to support their friends, their or families, or even their partners who get an HIV diagnosis? Oh, God,
1: please don't say. So I always say this. If,
0: if you got diagnosed
1: with breast cancer, for example, you'd go home and you would tell your mom and they go, oh, that's awful. How are you feeling? You know, what can we do to support you? If you get diagnosed with a HIV diagnosis, you go home. One, you probably would never tell your mother. And yeah. if you did tell someone, most people just say, how did you get that? That's everyone's response. It's like that nosy gossipy Oh, how did you get that? And it's because it's linked with sex. So what I would say is if someone does tell you that they've got HIV, go treat it like they've just told you they've got a cancer. I mean, it's it's not as bad. I mean, God, it's no way as bad as a cancer diagnosis. But just, just think about how you'd feel having to tell someone that because it's really difficult. So just be sensitive. It doesn't matter how they got it. That's irrelevant. If they're your friend, you just need to support them and love them. You know, it doesn't you know, doesn't matter. They, you know, my whole point about, you know, when people are homophobic or anything else, that what happens in people's bedrooms or, you know, in their own sex life should have no impact on anybody else's, well, anybody else's life, really. Mm-hmm. You know, unless someone's trying to have sex with you and you don't want it. I mean, that's a whole different ball game. Um So yeah, just try and be empathetic and just say, God, that's all, how are you coping? Mm-hmm. You know, what can I do to support you? And if someone says, please keep it a secret, please keep it a
0: secret. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. And so it's completely possible and positive to be in a relationship where one person has an HIV diagnosis and the other person does not. A hundred
1: percent. And I always actually say, I know people laugh at me when I say this, but if you have a partner who's HIV positive on treatment, they're actually safer to have sex with than someone who's never been tested because you can't get HIV off someone who's on treatment, blah, blah, blah. Whereas actually, if you've never been tested, then it's a bit like Russian roulette, isn't it? Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And you know, often people who who do have HIV, they're coming to see us regularly. You know, they'll be having STI screening regularly. Do you know what I mean? So they're in the system. It's people who are sitting there at home, thinking, oh, well, you know, it wouldn't happen to me. And have never, ever been tested for anything. Yeah, the, the people who, you know, need to just think about, mm, actually, and th- there was a post, I mean, it's been around since the blimey, 1980s, it's still the best one. So there's, there's a man and a woman, um, and then it's their tree of sex. So I think the woman's only had sex uh, with, it's very judgmental, it was back mm-hmm. in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> There's a woman who's, who's having sex with this man. And then it shows the tree of how many people the man's had sex with. And it's just balloons. Mm. And so that woman's only had sex with that one man. But that man has had sex with, say, five people. But those five people have all had sex with ten people. And, you know, so, you can, so it's not just the person that you're having sex with that you have to yeah. think about. It's, it's also the background. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if that man had been tested and she'd been tested, you start again at zero. Do you know what I mean
0: with yeah. regards to STIs? Yeah. So I've got two thoughts. One is that we should make a new campaign, just letting no everyone know <laughs> what um, what HIV is like now and how you can live with it and how it's not something to be um, pathologized and you know yeah. to be super super scared of, and yeah. also. Forgot my second point. I got too carried away of the first one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a great point. <laughs> just did that one. I mean, that's kind of why
1: we try and promote the "you equals you" campaign because it's you know, you equals you. Sort of. Well, what does that mean? But I think sometimes it's a bit confusing to people. So it's almost breaking it down, and explaining it. But it really is that message that you know we need to just get out of the nineteen eighties AIDS mindset and yeah, you know do have a renewed think about it and we've moved on you know like you know we're talking about trans issues now and you know I mean being a, a gay man now is so less stigmatized you know I know there's still stigma everywhere but compared to the 1980s we've moved on you know so culturally we really are advancing I hope we are anyway I feel we are Yeah. Um, and I think people are much more open to discussions about pansexuality and, you know, gender fluidity and all these different things that were, weren't were really words back in the 70s. You know, whereas our parents are like, oh, poof, our minds are blown. <laughs> you know, actually our children are growing up, you know, going, oh yeah, you know, Daisy's gay at school. Oh, great, you know, great. You know, it's not, it's not even an, it's just a statement of fact. Whereas I know at my school, I didn't know anyone who was gay. Obviously there were, gay people but so I think we're definitely moving on and we just need to keep the education going
0: yeah and takeaway of the day for the listeners is go and get tested if you haven't been tested (laughs) go and get tested definitely (laughs) Naomi it has been such a dream to have you here I've definitely learned a lot myself can you please tell the listeners where they can find you
1: so I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Dr Naomi Sutton um yeah that's it really I'm not very good at (laughs) definitely not on TikTok. well I'm no
0: (laughs) 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 well Naomi's Instagram is awesome so definitely give her a follow and yeah it was such a dream to have you thank you so much for coming pleasure darling
1: you have a lovely day